This is Creative Mornings, a new podcast showcasing the global creative community. This episode is brought to you by MailChimp. MailChimp has over 8 million users that collectively send over 17 billion emails a month. More at MailChimp.com. MailChimp. Send better email. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. This is Matt, and we're going to dive right into this week's show because in the podcast world, today's speaker is a pretty big deal. Lulu Miller is an NPR science desk reporter and co-host of their wildly popular Invisibilia program. NPR is famously based out of Washington, D.C., and our D.C. Creative Mornings host, Joel Daly, told us that every time they approach who should speak at their events, they like to think about how they can represent a different corner of creative professions. We hadn't done as much with journalists uh, and that sort of journalistic storytelling as we would like. Um, and we have a great resource here in D.C., which is, um, of course, uh, NPR, among others. And in researching the journalism front, one name kept popping up time and time again, Lulu Miller. I recognized her name because I, I listened to... Uh, Radio Lab, which she was a part of, and came across one of her pieces that just made my heart like sink. It was one of my favorite stories that I've ever heard, and just instantly was like, oh my gosh, if we could get this person who produced this amazing piece. You'll actually hear a clip of that piece very early on in Lulu's talk. So she's the host of Invisibilia, along with her co-host, Elise Spiegel. And when this event took place one year ago this month, November 2014, they were immersed in production for season one of that show. So they had promised each other not to take on anything else that would detract from their work on Invisibilia. And although Lulu was flattered to be asked... Her initial response was, no, once we get the show kind of in the can a little bit more in January, uh, I'll have more time. And I just foresaw this being... You know, Serial was blowing up at the time, and I was like, what if they get big and she doesn't have time even after that everything... Plus, you know, it just seemed like such a great match. I don't think I have to explain Serial to you, but if you're just getting into podcasts, it might be worth a Google search. So let's recap. Joel has his heart set on Lulu. Lulu, though flattered and excited, has to decline. And Joel has no problem admitting that there was some begging involved. Over email back and forth, I begged pretty emphatically and pathetically um, to say, um, please do this for us. It would be so incredible. It obviously worked. And what Lulu brings to the table was one of a kind. You know, she has this confidence, she has this energy, and she's unapologetic about it. She has something that I think everybody can learn from, from the perspective of, I do this work. I've learned a few things along the way that help me do this work better and better. And I'm going to share them with you and hope that you have something that you can take from it and use in your own work. Lulu definitely delivered on that for us. I'm forever grateful. Um, I think Tina, toward the end of the talk, while it was still going on, leaned over to me and said, I just want to take her home in my pocket, which I figured was, was like, you know, Tina speak for this kicks ass. The Tina he speaks of is Creative Mornings founder, Tina Roth-Eisenberg. And I think it's funny that she said that because now, thanks to this podcast, we all have Lulu in our pocket. There's a little bit of foul language, so be warned about that. And I'm going to let you have it. Here's Lulu Miller from November of 2014, when the Creative Mornings global theme was Chance. Enjoy. So the way I want to begin today is um, 
is by doing one of my favorite things, which is disappearing into somebody else's head, um, which is one of my favorite things about radio. As a listener, I fell in love sort of unexpectedly and passionately. I had hated NPR growing up. Any time the, mor like the morning edition or all things considered button came on, I, would, I think I was Pavlovianly conditioned to feel nauseous. And I was like, I want Jam in 94.5, mom, like switch the station. So I was not a public radio fan growing up, but then right after college, um, when like, you're like, oh, what do I do? I'm like lonely and confused. And I just started connecting so much with podcasting and with the radio in this like deep, surprising way. I found myself laughing more than I often did with, with, re with reading things and, and crying often. And there, another talk could be on like why I think radio is so powerful. Um, but anyway, it was this sort of slow, falling in love and I think one of the things that's so beautiful is you do get a sort of a you get um guests in your head you're like usually alone with your thoughts but these these ears are sort of portals to your head I mean like if eyes are the window to the soul sorry ears are the fucking door <laughs> like you get they come in and the voices you're hearing like reside with you and sit in there with you and you get a little break you get a little company um and and so so that's how I want to start. Um, so this is a piece uh, that I did for Radiolab, um, and it's gonna we'll start out a little bit sad today, but we'll, it'll pick up. Um, so this is a piece about a friend of mine who we call Sarita in the piece. And she fell in love with a guy who has face blindness, which is this condition where you can't recognize faces. So otherwise you can see totally fine, but you just can't recognize faces. Um, and so Radiolab was doing a show on falling. And I pitched them the idea, hey, if my friend is willing to talk about this, maybe what we could talk about is what is it like to be loved when someone can't recognize you? When so much of love is that you stand out from the crowd, I always wondered, like, what was it like for her to be gazing into the eyes of this guy who literally couldn't see her face in some way, and what's that like? And so that, that was sort of my idea for the piece. And so I talked to her, and I talked to him, and what ended up happening was so much more than that. And so I'm just going to play you the last two minutes of the piece. So let me just interrupt here for a second. First of all, this piece you're about to hear is the piece that Joel mentioned in our discussion earlier. And also, for about five minutes after this Radio Lab clip, there was something that went wrong with the audio at the event this day, and it's nothing we could fix in post. But I also wouldn't edit it out because it would compromise the integrity of her talk. So I left it in, and I just wanted to let you know that there's nothing wrong with your speakers, and it goes away. I promise. Um, what's just happened is they were sort of in love in college, and at that time she was, you know, re you know it, was, it felt like a love of the life, love of your life kind of relationship. And then suddenly he breaks up with her, and she doesn't really understand why. Did you feel like you, at a certain point, started to actually fall out of love with him? Like No, when... there was no falling. It was just like I was at the bottom of a well, sitting and stewing. I loved him. Yeah. So much. And would you see him in the neighborhood? Because you're still neighbors, right? Right, yeah. We would see each other around at parties, and 
he was working at a restaurant that had an outdoor patio. And I walked by there a few times without him knowing it was me, where I could see him and look at him. But you got to just be hidden. Yeah. I got to just walk by. Yeah. So there is comfort in that. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's hard somehow. Yeah. Um, that I wouldn't. That I wouldn't see her. She. It's like she faded back into the crowd. Yeah. Quickly. I had become. Lost. It's actually haunting to me to hear that. So, I think one of the things that happens in that piece is that, though it's talking about this condition, which very few people probably have experience with, it's sort of metaphorically resonant. Like, we all know what it's like to be the person who is dumped and pushed back into a crowd, and you're like, but I'm special see me and that's horrible and so you're resonating with that and yet you're also like seeing that he is so haunted here's a guy who lives with this condition but even he thought she would have stood out and you feel that like moment of him being so haunted by that and I think um these are the kinds of moments that like at least I am not going to get to from my own thinking or my own ideas about the world. These are the moments of chance. I brought this highly intellectual idea to the story. It's about being recognized in the face of a crowd. And then what you get is like just emotional freaking honesty and strange little things. Like she basically got an invisibility cloak. Like she got to just stand and watch him. These strange images and surprises that I don't think are gonna come from inside. I think um, that chance is one of your greatest allies. And seriously, this was a, a happy sort of union of the topic today. I, I have been thinking so much. It's just this chaos of debris, which are the richness for your creative process. And yet I think we're sort of wired inherently to like be a little disdainful of chance. We're like, yeah, it might work for me, but the goods are going to come from inside my skull. And um, I really think that anything you can do to fight against that instinct is going to make your work stronger and richer. And so I'm calling this talk Catapulting Pellets of Chance into Your Stupid Head. Um, and I call your head stupid because, like, you know inside your head thinks it's wicked smart. And it's like, I, got, I know how we're going to do this. Here's the poetry. Here's the clever reference. And that can be useful. But often I think that the domain inside your head when you sit too long there can really lead you astray. And I think that like the richness really might exist precisely one inch outside your skull. But it's hard as a creative person because like, I don't know, most, most creative professions and work, I think you do have to make from inside your head. So it's, there's this kind of this paradox. But so what I'm gonna get to very shortly is sort of nine little tips of how to like 
fight against your desire to stay in your head and catapult more of the outside world in that are sort of radio specific, but I'm hoping most of them will have crossover sort of appeal, relevance. Um, okay, but very quickly, I will sort of tell you my journey into radio and into this realization because I did not start believing in chance at all. I sort of thought the head was where it was at. Um, and so my sort of creative love started with writing. Um, when I was a little girl, I loved writing, and I remember this, I was trying to think about what it felt like, and I remember one of the first stories I ever wrote, I looked up into the rafters of our house, and, and we saw a bat when I was a little girl, I think I was like about eight years old, and there was a bat up in the, ra in, in the rafters, and all of a sudden, it was the first time I'd ever seen a bat up close, and it went from like spooky silhouette to like adorable little mouse-like creature. And I don't know why, and then we like had this whole epic drama with like getting the bat in a Tupperware and like running out of the house and leaving my dad on a ladder trying to like get it. And he's like, Argh! Um, and then we got the bat out and released it. Anyway, this was this like amazing moment. And later that afternoon, I remember going onto my parents' bed because it was like this big expanse and I took a big stack of white paper with the perforated edge and, and just started writing a story about this bat. And it was like, it started in a rafter of a crazy family, but then it was, and it thought it was going to die in the Tupperware, but then it was relieved and it had released and it had a new release on life. And then, and earlier that day, we'd been walking in a marsh and seen this like abandoned boat wreck. So then it found a boat and it figured out how to drive the boat. And then like, it's this whole story. And anyway, the sensation of writing felt, it, it felt like sledding. Like it was just like, big white pieces of paper and you have no idea where you're going and it's so fun. And so at an early age I was like, writing is the most fun. And I was like, I shall be a writer. And that was like locked in as my passion. And, you know, make it through school, make it through college and like everyone else is, is kind of lining up jobs and I was like, I'm finally going to try to write. And so I got, a, I got a job working for a woodworker because I'd done a lot of sculpture in college. And, that, and, and so then I was like, it's time to write. And then I would go home after work each day and try to write, and it felt like this. Just so you know what everybody's looking at, Lulu flashes a slide on the screen of two portrait sketches. Looks like they're hand-drawn with a pencil or something, and she goes on to explain. Which is sort of the look of, like, stagnance, frustration, trying to prove self-worth and failing, um, writer's block, like, just like this empty, lonely, I think if you look up sledding, the antonym is th this picture. Like it's the opposite of fun and movement. And so, and what I've come to think about that feeling is like the loneliness, this like tr creating from here, like is sort of the best way I can put it. Like when you're trying to just be like, I wanna prove myself and, 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 and this is what I think of as the domain of the crocodile. And now she shows the audience a hand-drawn sketch of a crocodile. So he's got like fangs and he's like defensive and he's got a lot of to prove. And I am wary of this guy now because I think ultimately like he will lead you astray when you're creating from the place of trying to prove self-worth. Like I think he's a dangerous creature. So anyway, into that lovely situation, dropped one day in the wood shop, 
this radio. We would have the radio on all day from 8 to 5. I was the best informed of my life that year because we were listening to the news all day long. And one day, this, this was 2005, a, this local science documentary series called Radiolab came on the air. And I remember this piece was about fireflies, these fireflies that light up in unison on the trees. So the, the image they said is picture Christmas trees lighting up all in unison, all on and then all off. The question being, how do they know how to do that? Like, who, which firefly is like, all right, guys, on the count of three. And, and so the, the, topic, the topic of that show was emergence. How does order come out of disorder when there's no leader? And anyway, this is, this is what that sounded like. Picture it. There's a riverbank in Thailand in the remote part of the jungle. You're in a canoe slipping down the river. There's no sound of anything, maybe the occasional, you know, exotic jungle bird or something. And you're looking and you just see... Whoop, 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 with thousands of lights on and then off, all in sync. Imagine all the trees, as far as you can see, are all brilliantly lit and then totally dark. Brilliantly lit, total darkness. All of them in sync. Yeah. Isn't that beautiful? Um, and I remember my blood just like cooling. And I was like, that is so beautiful. I want more of that. And so, I, and then I actually remember we were like planing this big board and so then we had to put on the earmuffs and I didn't get to hear the rest of the episode and I was like no um, and so I went home that night and like binge listened to three episodes of Radiolab and there was just this spooky resonance of like they're right they're down the street I was living in Brooklyn at the time they're just right there and I have no experience and it would be the least useful person to them but I am going to write them a, a, an intern request like love letter um, and so <laughs> I, I said, you know, can I come help out? And it was, it was early days. They're like, sure, you can volunteer. And so for about a year, one day a week, I went in and I burned CDs and I answered listener emails and I didn't do any radio, but I would go to staff meetings and I was around these people making beautiful things. And then they got money to hire a producer. They, and like they hired me over someone with talent because I could upload audio to the satellite feed. Like I, and then they were like, well, we're paying you, so let's teach you how to make radio. And so I, I sort of lucked out on timing. This was before the show went national and got this basically five-year apprenticeship in how to make radio um, from some of the most joyful, fun radio storytellers there are out there. If you haven't heard Radiolab, you should definitely check it out. Um, and so that was like the opposite of that stagnant feeling. Like there was just chance coming in the head every single day. And there's a lot of built-in chance to radio inherently because every, you're working with other people's minds, you know, every interview, you have no idea. Um, but that was like, you just, like there, it was just filled with so many happy accidents. Um, go interview the, at the Seattle Zoo about gorillas and the first cage that was created to look like the outdoors instead of just a horrible cement cage. Or go interview children about why mermaids are so cool. Or how do tumors work? Or who, here's a 94-year-old man with music hallucinations. It was just like, blah, so much randomness. And those five years went by so quickly. Um, and, and it often sounded like, here's just a random moment. I'm not going to even give you setup because it doesn't matter. But this is like, it often sounded like this. And then, 
in walks a fellow named Mr. Goobel. No, no, no. <laughs> Goobel. Not Goobel. Goobel. Goobel sounds really awful. Oh, really? Uh-oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Try to make it more like Goobel. Goobel. Yeah, Pablo. Okay. Mr. Goobel. <laughs> no. No? Goobel. Goobel. No. <laughs> okay, we'll just like, we'll just use you saying it. We'll just, you're Mr. Mr. Goobel. Okay, so Mr. Goobel was an older gentleman. And for the rest of that piece, we just use her saying it. I still do not know what was like, I thought I, I don't know. But so like, just moments like that, that you're not, you're not, you are not going to script that. And not that that's like changing anyone's life, but it's just a sprinkle of joy. It's just a sprinkle of against the expectation of how something's going to go. Um, and so I started to be like, there might be some goodness in the randomness and the chance. There might be sadness when it's unexpected or joy when it's unexpected or images. That's probably the best thing, just images that you could never dream up. Um, so, which gets me to a brief one minute dad interlude. Um, so this is my dad. He is um, like an intermittently broody and joyful, biochemist um, and so he what so two years ago I started working at NPR as a science reporter and there's sometimes this idea this dichotomy in reporting um, sort of reporting versus storytelling and storytelling can be a bad word in reporting um, because storytelling is imposing a structure upon the truth and storytelling can be dangerous because you're bringing your vision to reality and it could make you like have some sort of bias where you're not hearing the truth and you just want things to be orderly and neat. And so I've been thinking a lot about this because I just bluntly and totally came into this world through a love of storytelling. So I'm constantly trying to check my own impulses to impose a story on reality and I was feeling like dirty about like the fact that I like to tell stories and I was I was just feeling like am I doing my job wrong and so I called my dad to talk about this a couple of years ago and I was just like oh it's so bad that I have like a, I'll have a vision for something and it makes me bad and he was like well I think about this in science and the way I think about it is that the hunch is what gets you out the door but the discovery is wilder than you could imagine and I was like oh Okay, so it's okay to have the hunch, um, but I like that for the theme of chance too. Again, it's like the discovery, like your little hunch comes from in here and you think it's about this, and then the discovery is so much crazier than your stupid head can dream up. And so I think, like it's, I think the hunch or the vision for the piece can be the engine that gets you walking into the world, that gets you bothering trying to like build a house or create a painting or you know write a story it's that hunch that like that is it's worthwhile the, the head stuff but then if you just let yourself walk that out into the world the discovery can be so much richer um and which brings me to what i'm doing now this is elise spiegel what's happening here is lulu shows the audience a strobe of images kind of like a gif with her and elise spiegel and they're displaying different emotional states that uh, she'll go on to explain in a minute she is a, she's been a reporter, a mental health reporter on NPR for 10 years. Before that, she helped start This American Life. She did a lot of great stories with them. And I think if you ever know, if you're ever like making your coffee and suddenly drawn into a piece and it feels like a short story and you're like so invested in the character, it's probably an Elise Spiegel radio piece. Um, 
she she reports often on like highly emotional stories and she has such a as a person she has incredible directness like she will just ask you anything and um she's just she it just is like a very sort of incredible um reporter and and just person and so so we are starting um a new radio show that is coming out in six weeks um called invisibilia and it is about this word is latin for all the invisible things and what it's about is the invisible forces that control or shape human behavior so all these little things that you might not realize are affecting you each episode we look at one of these forces and basically tell stories and drop in a little psychological science to kind of make sense of it with the hope that actually in understanding it you'll know you'll sort of gain some tools over your life so we sometimes secretly call it self-help it's like a secretly a self-help show but i didn't say that i didn't say that um and and it'll be coming out of the um we're, we produced it out of npr news and the si the editor of the science desk Anne Gudenkoff has been our editor, so it's like, I'm like, let's tell the story about this. And she's like, I'm gonna edit you. You have to fact check this 400 times. It's like the, edit it's like the editorial standards of the NPR with like that. So it's like a, anyway. Um, but so, <laughs> so, oh, and what that, what that strobe was very quickly was the six main emotions, happiness, or sorry, joy, sadness, disgust, fear, contempt and surprise that was us those are like the six main emotions which are actually like different physiological states and anyway i am deeply digressing okay so um so so we're trying to make this show and a strange thing has happened which is that this guy has started to come back a little bit even though it's radio i think because I care about it so much. There's this like, I'll be working on a piece and I'm like tweaking and I'm thinking about how to be clever and I've been sitting alone for three days with tape and writing and he's ruling again and he's kind of like making me make bad decisions. And so what I've been thinking about really consciously over the past year is how to bring more chance into the creative process, like the sparkly fresh air. So what I wanna leave you with is my top nine tricks for engineering chance into the creative process. We'll get to those in a second, but first, let's take care of some business. And today's episode is made possible by MailChimp. Here's what's funny. I went to newsletters.creativemornings.com, which is a dedicated site that Creative Mornings put together featuring some interesting newsletters. I was looking for someone who uses MailChimp so we could discuss MailChimp. The first that jumped out at me was Austin Cleon's weekly newsletter. Little did I know, Austin was actually the very first Austin, Texas Creative Morning speaker. So we're dealing with an alumnus here. Anyway, Austin is an artist and writer who sends a newsletter to over 20,000 subscribers. That is very simply put, 10 things he finds interesting each week. But the thing I like about the newsletter, it's a, it kind of craves its own content. I think what people will discover when they start using MailChimp is that it's really kind of its own medium. And no matter how many subscribers you have, you're always dealing with the inevitable heartbreak of someone clicking that dreaded unsubscribe button. There's a way to change your dashboard so you never get notified. <laughs> subscribe. 
<laughs> Once I figured that out, it made it much more pleasant. <laughs> so if you ever get too depressed, just go to your settings and set that you don't want to see when people unsubscribe, and it makes it a much more positive experience. <laughs> MailChimp has over 8 million users that collectively send over 17 billion emails a month. More at MailChimp.com. MailChimp. Send better email. Okay. So back to Lulu Miller's top nine tricks for engineering chance into the creative process. Okay, so number one, yodeling. Tina, who's, who started Creative Mornings, this is not just for you, but she's Swiss Miss, like this, that's her Twitter handle. So, but, so um, I really think about this a lot. So, okay, so yodeling is like, you know how the like curse of humanity is that you're condemned to your own head, no matter how much you try. So like we're all these separate heads, these separate rock faces that like that can't always connect with, and they each have all this information in it. But sometimes if you just like, you're oh actually, <laughs> kind of if you just like yodel across the divide. You get this echo back, and sometimes you might even start an avalanche. Um, and so, so what I think about is like I'll yodel what I think the meaning is for a story across. So I'll bring my stupid hunch, I'll bring my stupid idea to the person I'm interviewing, and I'll say like, "Is your story about the recognition of love?" And they're like, "Not fucking at all." And but. <laughs> Some, because you ask them, then maybe it shakes something out. And I have found that 10 times out of 10, the echo that comes back is better. But maybe you needed to like call it out to get it to go. So here's a very quick sonic example of this happening in real time. This again was for a Radiolab piece called The Bus Stop, which if anyone here is a designer, this is like the best design solution I have ever heard to a problem. So. There's a nursing home in Germany who have all these, this problem, very typical, of patients with Alzheimer's and dementia wandering out of the nursing home because they're, they wake up and they're like, where the heck am I? This makes no sense. Who are all these people in hospital gowns? Ah, and it's, it's a very, it's a horrible thing. And either they're gonna wander away or they're gonna get in some sort of really aggressive altercation. So, Traditionally, the only way to deal with this has been to like lock the doors, you know, put people with Alzheimer's and dementia on locked floors, which is just horrible and totally not humane. But what can you do? You want to keep them safe. And so this guy in Germany came up with this idea to put a bus stop out in front of the nursing home where the patients could go and they could be like, I am out of here, and they leave, and they are like, bus stop, see ya, and they sit on the bus stop, and then no bus ever comes. And that was the design solution. So they sit there, and they're, they're psyched, they're waiting for the bus, they're gonna go home, and then they slowly sort of feel a little bit better, and maybe a nurse sees them and brings them back in when they're, you know, chats them up, and suddenly they're talking about tea, and they're like, yeah, let's go get some of that. And it's this totally humane and simple way. It's just a bus stop with no bus. And so it's a radio story about that. And so yodeling is the thing here. And so what I did, this happened off tape, but I was asking a little bit, so it's a, it's a German man talking about it, the head of the poem, and then a woman is translating. So I, I was trying to ask him, like, 
What is it like when memories disappear? Does it happen quickly? Like I was trying to impose some sort of imagery or meaning onto what's it like for the person sitting on the bus? Like, does that memory just evaporate? Does it go away quickly? Does it go away slowly? And just watch what comes back. Do you know why, or, or can, I guess, can you describe it disappearing? Like, does it go away slowly for, or yeah. suddenly? Wie vergessen die dann so Sachen? Geht das dann so oder so? Also man muss unterscheiden, welche Stadien der Demenz ja, die Menschen ja. haben. Es geht ja nicht bei allen okay. gleich. Wissen Menschen, uh, so, Richard so says, it's like another thought comes up and then you forget what you wanted. Yeah. You know, it's like uh, fish is coming up to the surface of the water and then going down again and disappearing. Hmm. Thoughts come up and they disappear. And you don't know that they have ever been there. Oh. Yeah. You forget. <laughs> Which is, it's interesting. It's the forgetting is both the problem and the solution. Yeah. Just that image of the fishes, like that still sticks with me today, that, that these things just disappear beneath the surface. And it's like, oh, other people's minds are these troves of beauty that you can steal and harness and put into your work. But so that, okay, anyway, the list is going to go quicker. I know people have to go to work. By the way, if anyone just like has to go to work, I won't be offended. Okay, so number two, numbers game. So this, ha oh, this, this, I had my sort of learning moment for this on my first day of work, working with Elise, who again is just this like much more good reporter than I am, just like <laughs> great. And, and we were doing a piece about thoughts for, and that actually is going to be our first episodes. The way you answer the question, what are my thoughts related to my inner wishes or are they just chatter? You know, are they just popcorn and randomness? Actually, the way you answer that question can have profound impact for your life and uh, consequences for your life. So we were doing a story about a man who was overrun by violent thoughts. So everywhere he looked, he'd like, anyone he looked at, he'd picture like slashing their throat or, you know, just horrible things. And the more he started thinking about this, the more he was like, am I going crazy? Am I a danger to society? Am I a danger to my wife? What is happening? And it really became a problem for him. And the piece ends up being about his very surprising way out of this after years. He went and saw a therapist who was like, oh, come here, take this butcher knife and hold it to my throat. And he stood there for 15 minutes with a butcher knife to his therapist's throat, slowly realizing the butcher knife being a very compelling form of evidence that his thoughts meant nothing. So in this case, if you answer that your thoughts maybe mean nothing, maybe you get some peace from them. Um, but that therapist sure has a lot invested in the idea that thoughts mean nothing. <laughs> um, so, so what I needed to find for, on my first day of work was a therapist who was like, that guy is an idiot. Thoughts mean a lot. Um, and so this was sort of a psychodynamic therapist. I needed to find someone to talk about the other side. And so Elise was like, all right, well, like, just um, what I often do is get like a big gulp of coffee and sit down and do this thing called continuous reporting where I just cold call psychodynamic therapists for three hours and I never actually let the phone rest in the cradle, okay? Um, and I was like, Ooh. okay. But so, can, so this like idea, that image of like, you just don't even let it rest in the cradle. You just go, 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 go. And I think with the numbers game, what you end up doing is you, you bless each encounter with the quality of low stakes. 
So whatever may happen may happen. And you're also like, your head doesn't get control because there may be some strand of tinsel that like comes out of each conversation that you never expected. And maybe it doesn't work for your story, but it works for something down the line. So just, this probably works for dating too. Just like, boom, boom, boom. And like you bless each one with low stakes and then also you're not as nervous because you're like, if this fails, doesn't matter. I'm calling 15 more of you. Okay. So, okay, number three is eyes on the hallways. Um, so this kind of came up uh, at a radio conference I was at recently, this reporter, Marianne McCune, who does really compelling news pieces with a lot of like surprise in them, was saying that often if she's going to conduct an inter interview in a room, she will like get her best tape on the hallway in and out. So like interview happens, her head controlled for that, she comes in with questions, and then there's some weird moment or some encounter, either with the person before they're sort of really in that zone, or on the way out they meet someone, or like if the phone rings and they're talking about what they do professionally, and then they're like, oh yeah, what up? And then they'll something. And like, you suddenly hear them as, as themselves. And this is something I've encountered time and time again, just that like, precisely what I engineered for an interview or for getting some scene tape, doesn't matter and it's like some little thing I happen to catch that is the, the sort of like nut of the story. And so I think for all of us, just like keep your eyes peeled, whatever the thing you're working on is, like keep your eyes peeled when you're in transit. Keep your eyes peeled for that insight just when your head is like, has, has been like, this doesn't matter. Because I think you often see things there. Um, okay, number four, shitty pots. So. I don't know if anyone's ever heard of this experiment. There was an art class out in California. Half the class was told, all right, kids, this semester you have to make as many ceramic pots as possible. I see some nods. This is such a good, okay. So as many ceramic pots as possible. Numbers, people. And the other half of the class was like, you guys have to make one beautiful pot this semester. And at the end of the semester, an independent panel of judges came in and each kid submitted their best pot from the two groups. And it was something like nine out of 10 of the most beautiful pots came from the side that was just like, churn them out, churn them out. And what was observed is that like, in, on that side of the class, there was so much play. There was cross-pollination, kids trying things. Um, and again, I think it's this idea that like, time can actually, you can feel like a deadline if you don't have enough time to accomplish your dream, like that that's a curse. And I just wish I had a fellowship to have seven months to ponder whatever. But actually I think no time can be really good. Um, I, I heard recently, and I cannot remember where this quote, that productivity equals a huge idea and not enough time to do it. And it's like, oh, maybe this is a blessing because when you just churn things out, you, you collect like the debris of life and what you happen to read or see or whoever you talk to that day. And again, I think it's a way to pull you out of the rule of the crocodile. Okay, five, reframe the frustration as gold. So I don't know if you've ever been in, an, in a, some sort of group think situation and you're trying to explain your idea and someone doesn't get it and you're like, you don't see me as a person. And it's like a horrible, it's like not even a little cute or okay. It's like a horrible feeling. And um, sometimes with my co-conspirator Elise, I have this feeling. We have a lot of Venn diagram interests, some things in common, like what the kinds of stories we're drawn to. 
but often with stylistic choices, we're on opposite sides. And so I'm, I'm often like, how about you? Ah, ah. But I think what is really often behind that defensive, really nasty, bad feeling is actually your best insight. And so very quickly, a, an example of this, we're doing a show um, called How to Become Batman. And it's about this technique called echolocation that increasingly um, people who are blind have been using where you, I can't do it very well, you, you click sort of like a bat. Um, and from the way those echoes bounce off of things in the environment, you can get a whole lot of information about what's around you. And so there's a really famous guy doing it, um, often called Batman, who's so good at it, he can ride a bike. Completely blind, he can mountain bike. He is incredible. So the story's, oh, it's partly about him but it's partly about the neuroscience behind it and, uh, and other things. Um, and I, I was like working on the neuro section and, and I was playing it for her because what's been shown is that the people who are doing echolocation, who are really good at it, their visual cortexes, the part in their brain responsible for creating images, is lighting up like crazy and lighting up in strikingly similar ways to people who can see. And so I was like writing all these lines like, what this suggests is that your brain might like information, visual information through the eye holes, but it'll take it through the ear holes. <laughs> and like, it, like all the, or like, the brain is metamodal. Like I was just like clevering it up. And, and, the, and then Elise in an edit was like, you know what, I think we should cut the neurosection. And I was like, cut the neurosection? Are you insane? And, and I was like, it's like, you, you, this is saying that you might not need eyes to see. And she's like, oh, it's saying that you might not need eyes to see? And I'm like, yes. And she's like, well, you didn't say that. Um, and so, so here's how we now do this moment in the piece. All right, Ms. Spiegel. So I know that sometimes neurology and neuroscience goes over my head. Or just sounds like a foreign language that you're not particularly interested in <laughs> speaking. Uh-huh. But... Just land the plane for me. Okay. What does this mean? What this work suggests uh -huh. is that you may not actually need eyes to see. I kind of feel like we got to shout it from the rooftops. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. You might not need eyes to see! Now, Laura is by no means the only person seeing this result. The idea first started coming up in the mid-90s, when a lab at Harvard saw that visual areas of the brain can be activated by sound and touch. Do I have to do it? Uh-huh. You might not need eyes to see! Okay, and then we would have never gotten there. I would have buried it in some clever BS. Like, it's this amazing thing. So I think truly frustration can be your greatest ally. I'm going power fast now. So, number six, this is my favorite. Admit you are just a skeevy teenager who likes doing illicit things. <laughs> just because they're illicit. Okay, so can, can some people shout out what they put on their name tag as they're, the thing they like doing that has nothing to do with work? Can we just get some fake dance? Puzzles! Photography. Okay, so like, I think that the hobby is a profoundly sacred thing. It, and what I, what I mean by hobby is a thing you just love doing that has no connection to your self-worth. And you're just like, that's fun. Mine would be pies or doodles. Um, I, I just like love doodling. So, 
and it's just it's just pure fun. And so I think harnessing some of that power of like this is not the thing I'm supposed to be doing, therefore it's more fun, is actually something you can bring into your process. So one tech, one strange technique I've come up with for this is like window hopping, where you in your computer you're supposed to be working on this, but then you put this other window behind it, and you're like. <laughs> And I'll just trick myself, like they're both just radio pieces I have to do, but I'm like, you have to be working on this neurosection, but you're gonna work on that other piece about quantum entanglement. Whereas if I was working on quantum entanglement that day, I'd be like, this is so hard, and like, anyway, so that's a technique. Um, and then an another way that this technique can manifest is just like, I think really it's about noticing that like ideas take place in the periphery, when you don't have the spotlight on this is what you have to do. So just carrying your iPhone around. Like, I have written whole radio scripts on a run, because I'm like, I'm not thinking about work. Oh, but this would be a cool way to do it. And suddenly it's like fun. So I don't know, harnessing that power of when it's the off task, sometimes it gets this like amazing creative juju. Like this, and for me, it's like devilish. It just adds, it just makes it work for me. Okay. Debunk the myth of the creativity killing focus group. So you've probably all heard that like Seinfeld wouldn't have come into being if they'd listened to what the focus group said because they were like, George is too weird. And, like, it, and so I think there's this, this concept in the creative world that focus groups are bad and idiotic and creativity killing. But I think that there, there is, I've always been like afraid of group thinky stuff, which has pushed me into private zone. But I actually think the point is you can cherry pick the solutions of the focus group, and you can be like, that's a bad call. George is funny, but you're right. It would be cool if Kramer like slid or whatever. I mean, I don't know, but like that they might suggest a few things. So that's all I would say is like, don't be wary of groupthink. Um, slurp from other people's brains, basically the same idea that there is so much insight in other brains. And so one thing I'll do with in radio is um, if I'm doing a piece, I'll tell them to record on their iPhones. Like, use them as test subjects. So there'll be the interview component, but maybe I'll have them record their thoughts for a day. So just thinking about how to bring test subjects into your process. And again, with the iPhone or like, you know, it's just, it's great sort of harnessing other, other minds for that. Um, okay, so then last, last tip is have a little damn faith. And weirdly, I think this whole thing, I'm sitting here saying like, think about chance, think about the universe, have faith in the universe, but really, I actually think it all comes back to having a little damn faith in yourself. Because I think that sometimes what the crocodile, the guy trying to get you to create and like make yourself important, what he brings is all this. He brings like plans and visions for the project. It's gonna be the most amazing thing. There's gonna be, you know, like, I don't know, if you're composing an opera, there's gonna be 10 million I don't know anything about music. I can't even make this reference. Um, or like there's going to be all these references or ideas. And I think that that feel, the hopes and the dreams per, for the project from your head, that feels like the fuel. That feels like that's why you're doing it. But I think it's actually the breaks. And it's actually the chokehold. And it's what prevents you every day from just doing it. And so I say like sit down with a little damn faith and do the thing you're doing and let go of the plans for it and trust that like you on your stupid little own will actually be okay. And so to recap this sort of idea that um, just that like the richness 
of the world and the, perhaps the stuff that will make your, your work the strongest lies outside and lies in the happy accidents and lies in you getting out of your head. I just want to play, end with one last clip. So this is from the, the show Invisibilia. This is going to be a, a shorter segment that goes on All Things Considered. And it's about this woman. It's sort of a companion piece to the episode on, on Batman and echolocation. So there's a question with echolocation, the clicking technique of can people who are older learn it? You know, little kids, if they're doing it their whole lives, can get good at it, but can older people? And so I met this woman who learned it at 40 years old. She's a mother of two, and she picked, she just started, she'd been blind her entire life, and she tried clicking. And what ended, she took to it really quickly. What ended up falling, standing in her way was her sons, and they were afraid to let her off their arm. And what happened is she was like, I've got to do this. And, and they were worried. And she went hiking one day and fell off a cliff. She was OK. She was the one telling me the story. So she was OK. Um, but hurt really badly. And you know, the question there is like, well, how do, how do her sons go on when their worst worry was realized? And so I was like, Mother's Day peace, we got it. Sons giving the gift of letting go. It's a reverse parent, you know, and just done skis. This is what this piece is about. So I booked the interview, and I interviewed her, I interviewed her boys, and her husband was like around. I was like, I guess I'll interview you too. And talked to him. Long story short, the whole piece really ends up being about him, and it's a similar trajectory. He's afraid of letting her go off his arm. Their arm had been a big point of connection in their relationship because he'd always led her on his arm their whole you know how they connected and so she finally they kind of fight a lot about whether or not she's going to go off of his arm and do the clicking and he finally lets her go and kind of gives her this gift of freedom the idea being that the, the arm itself is toxic because it can make your skills fade and just as he decides to let her go he gets sick. And so it's like he kind of gives this gift just a moment too late. And she has to decide. He gets, he gets MS, basically. And, and, and so she basically returns to his arm. And here's how the piece ends. Because of his illness, there are lots of things that we, you know, we don't have the same life that we used to have. And that is part of how we still connect. Every day she takes his arm and they walk. He now uses a walking stick. She often uses her cane, and uh, we walk side by side. Uh, we'll head down the street, I think, because there's a lot of space here. He walks very, very slowly now because of the degeneration in some of his joints. I'm not a terribly stable guide anymore, so... I mean, does it, though it's the same gesture, or is it the same gesture? Are you holding his arm? Or is he yeah. holding yours? No, I hold his arm. Actually, why don't you just go a bit, can you go a bit behind because sure. you're in the way of, so you can. So it's the same gesture, but does it actually feel like a reversal? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I guess metaphorically speaking, that's what's happening now. There's a change in, in the role in our relationship where um, she is sort of taking the lead and, and sort of caring for me something here as well. Lulu Miller, NPR News, Washington. I'm guessing it's another tree. Sounds very tree-like, or it could be a person. <laughs> and just that image of the two of them, each with canes, 
and like walking down the street every morning, like her foregoing her independence for that. It's like not ever coming from there. So chance be unto you. <laughs> you can watch this talk at creativemornings.com. And let's toss a little plug in here. Lulu Miller and Elise Beagle's podcast, Invisibilia, will be back with a whole new batch of episodes in 2016. This week's submission to our creative life question comes from Stefano from our Creative Mornings chapter in Montreal. A creative life, it's a curse. You know that your life would be a lot simpler if you weren't as creative. And yet, you wouldn't dare have that curse removed from your life. It defines who you are. So choosing a creative life is very much like deciding you're going to be Indiana Jones. You're constantly rolling up your sleeves and leaping out of these comfort zones and you're chasing these adventures because you're seeking to create this fulfilling body of creative work that'll hopefully resonate with people. Tell us what it means to you to lead a creative life and then send us your voice memos to podcast at creativemornings.com. Next week, we'll hear from founder and CEO of Squarespace, Anthony Casalena. He dissects the process of minimalism. It's actually really painful to throw things away. It's painful to end things, and usually the things you're throwing away aren't bad ideas. Our thanks to Lulu Miller, Joel Daly, and everyone at Creative Mornings. This episode was produced and edited by S. Mateo with sound engineering, mixing, and original score by Devin C. Johnson at Little Library Studios in collaboration with S. Mateo Music. This week's rooster comes courtesy of Eriberto in Madrid. Follow us on Twitter at Creative Morning. Remember, it's singular. And use hashtag PodcastCM when you tweet at us. For a complete archive of talks or just to get involved, go to creativemornings.com. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. Get, get, get.